News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. It's a warm welcome to you wherever you might be in the country. I'm Alec Hogg, and with me in studio here in Johannesburg, my colleague Stuart Lohman. Uh, he gives us all the insights into what the rest of the business community are reading and listening to on the website. And then in our virtual studio, we have our colleagues from Cape Town, Justin Rowe Roberts and Nadia Swart. Uh, just to give you an inkling of what's coming up in the program, Magnus Haystack in a little while talking about, Justin, one of our favorite subjects, the foolhardiness of forecasting. After reading Nassim Taleb, uh, you, you just know that anyone making a forecast is sticking their neck out to be chopped off, aren't they? I did listen to that Magnus interview. It was it was terrific. And um, one thing that stood out is that all the hidden agendas that plague the investment industry, as Mr., as Magnus says, it's it's really a rough game and it's not a gentleman's game out there. Um, and you've got to do your due diligence on your investments because a nice guy at the other side of the table might be looking to steal your family's money. I absolutely encapsulated it brilliantly there. We're also then going to be talking, Stuart Lerman, to uh, or rather uh, our colleague Chris Bateman. Uh, is uh, he, he had a, a conversation on mandatory vaccines. He did, Alec, with Kimantri Mudli. I hope I got that right. But it's quite interesting. The professor. Professor, yes, of medicine. Uh, it was on YouTube, and it's interesting to see the feedback from both sides of that debate. It's quite scary, but interesting at the same time. Um, but it's a, a very interesting um, look at why it should be a mandatory thing. People have very strong views about vaccines. <laughs> Just for the record, I've been vaccinated. I'm going to, I've had COVID. I'm going to get vaccinated again in the second shot of the Pfizer. So, You've been vaccinated. I, I got the one shot of the Johnson and Johnson at a couple of weeks ago. So yeah, but now Johnson Johnson says you're going to need another booster. One. Well, okay. Also tonight, Gigi Alcock. Now this is an interview to listen to because we're being told about doom and gloom and how our country is falling apart because unemployment is 40% or 45% if you take into account those people who've given up looking for work. But Gigi says that's all bunk because he says when you go and have a look where the tacky hits the tar, in the townships, in the informal areas, people are working. Uh, people are make, they're hustling. The informal economy in South Africa is huge. In Nigeria, they count 96% of their GDP as the informal economy. South Africa, we don't even count it. So it's uplifting, very uplifting. Uh, listen to Gigi. He's a guy who was raised in a mud hut in Singa, one of the uh, poorest districts still today in the country. And then finally, uh, Bronwyn Nielsen's got an interview for us tonight. She chats to Rulof Boerta, Dr. Rulof Boerta. Uh, Ultron just released a financial index and looking at the health of households, Alex. Uh, they, they've seen an uptick, but it's not from a high base. So it's a very interesting look at uh, how the individuals are handling the COVID sort of lockdowns and stuff. And a little punt for that interview. Rulof Boerta is the father of Rulof Boerta, who's the senior partner at Sequoia Capital in California, the uh, number one private equity man in Silicon Valley. Uh, we will, however, first find out what the business community are reading on the dot-com website, Stu. Alec, um, up top, our colleague, Claire Bardenor, she does community speaks pieces for us, and she did one on Cape Independence, um, and that's doing very well. It 
it's quite interesting to see that not everyone's in favor of it. And one of the themes that do come out is people say we should all work together to get South Africa right and stop trying to separate and compartmentalize the country. I love country. that. Thank you, Claire. Thank you, community members. Who I just felt like I was in a minority of one. Uh, <laughs> the way that everyone we know is now migrating south, but not everybody. <laughs> by a long shot, but maybe a lot of people we know. Okay, number two. Another piece that was actually done by Justin. It's the MassMod news on sort of uh, – strategy towards online with a one-cot uh, acquisition or potentially a one-cot acquisition. Addict once they've just sold up on the bricks and mortars, as we say, to ShopRite. And this was an announcement a few days after. And the valuations are quite similar. I know Justin's a bit more insightful on this, but it's a very interesting sort of shift from MassMart. Great story, Just. Very interesting. Going from that uh, high volume, low margin kind of brick and mortar business as Stu was talking about into the e-commerce game. Walmart have done it very effectively. So maybe the Americans are just looking to replicate that in South African shores. Watch out, Nasbeth. Another bit of bad news for Nasbeth, who own Take A Lot, uh, who would be in their sites. And then number three? Simon Lincoln Reader, he writes a column for us uh, generally once a week, and he looks at the good, good party's mayoral candidate for the elections, Alec, uh, Brett Heron. And just, uh, in Cape Town. In Cape Town. And some of his wokeness that he picked up before he was uh, appointed to be mayor. And, you know, Simon well, to be mayor, the, not to be mayor, but to be the candidate, candidate for mayor. For, sure. for mayor, yeah. yes, for, for the good part. Do you know who he's going against is uh, Gordon, uh, Gordon Hill, yeah. who is, I'm not sure if he's out of his 20s yet, but he's <laughs> been in politics for a long time, a very, very smart young man. Yeah. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that all pans out. Okay, Nadia, uh, on YouTube. So the top video in the last 24 hours was the summary of my interview with FNB CEO Jacques Celiers last week, in which he discusses the problem of brain drain in the country and the ways that FNB is trying to reduce it and what we can do to do the same. And then the live stream of your interview with Stephen Nathan yesterday is doing very well when he commented on the unemployment rate and also the flash briefing from yesterday where we covered the unemployment rate and also psilocybin's plans to list on the JC in the next 12 months. And as far as the podcasts are concerned? A podcast, similar theme. The interview with Stephen Nathan, we, as Nadia mentioned, top of those pops, Alec. Uh, behind that, there's Sean Pierce interview on the Bitcoin Brothers. And then in third is the Biz, Biz News Power Hour from last night. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Okay, Nadia, so what's in the news headlines today? South Africa's government unveiled a master plan aimed at harnessing a 28 billion rand cannabis industry that could potentially create as many as 25,000 jobs and help attract foreign investment. The Department of Agriculture, Land Reform and Rural Development led a two-year process to craft a national strategy for the industrialization and commercialization of the plant. The document incorporated lessons learned from major cannabis producers, including the US, Canada, Mexico and China. Establishment of the cannabis industry will lead to diversification of the economy and thus increase economic growth, create jobs and alleviate poverty, the department said on Wednesday. It identified legislative restrictions and the threat of takeover or dominance by well-funded companies and pharmacy groups as the main challenges to the industry. The plan envisages encouraging the cultivation of hemp and marijuana with applications ranging from medicine and food to recreational use. South Africa's economy is 11% bigger than previously estimated after statistics authorities changed the way they calculate gross domestic product. 
GDP at current prices measured at 5.52 trillion in 2020 compared with a previous estimate of 4.97 trillion. This is according to Joe De Beer, Deputy Director General of Economic Data at Statistics South Africa. And National Treasury has submitted the second special appropriation bill to Parliament seeking to unlock 32.9 billion rand in extra funding. Government departments will use the money to finance insurance claims related to the July riots, the deployment of soldiers and security forces to keep the peace after the riots, and to pay out social relief grants to those whose livelihoods were impacted and affected by the riots. Justin, how are the markets looking? The JSU All Share Index is flat at 67,400. In the currency markets, the rand was stronger against all the major currencies to 14 rand 96 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 51 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 56 cents to the euro. Gold is down at $1,794 an ounce. Kruger Rand will put you back around 28,000 Rand. Brent crude is flat at $71.60 a barrel. And Bitcoin is down sharply at 715,000 Rand per coin. In the financial news, days after announcing the sale of its non-core loss-making operations, namely Cambridge Foods, Rhino and Cash and Carry to ShopRite, MassMart has set forth its intentions to enter the e-commerce industry with the purchase of online, fast-moving consumer goods retailer OneCart. MassMart, which is controlled by American retail giant Walmart, is looking to re-engineer the business from a high-turnover, low-margin business, which has largely been unsuccessful for the better part of a decade. Despite top, the top line generating over $93 billion and $86 billion in 2019 and 2020, respectively, MassMart has failed to deliver a profit in either of those financial years. The Zaltzman family, which co-founded Discam, has announced that it is selling a large part of its shareholding, including a 10% stake to a BE consortium. Discam was founded in 1978 by pharmacists Ivan and Lynette Zaltzman. They currently own more than 50% of Discam, but announced on Tuesday that they will sell a stake of 7.5% in the company to invited investors in the market and a further 3.75% to senior executives. This market report was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Magnus Haystick, uh, it's such a joy to talk to you every Wednesday because no doubt you've got something that is buzzing around your head that you want to share with thousands of people who follow you. And what better subject than the folly of forecasting? Just by way of background, I met Nassim Taleb, uh, the author of Fooled by Randomness in the mid-2000s at a, at a hedge fund conference. And he banged on about it time and time again about how if you want to make a fool of yourself, try and forecast something. And it is it's certainly in your line of work as a financial advisor, it's got to be something that uh, that is close to your heart as well. You know, we've both been in the investment industry for a long time, Alec. We kind of... Our uh, bulldust barometers are very well developed. You know, you kind of get used to all the forecasts and the claims and 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 all the fantastic things that are, that are going to happen. So, so that's a starting point for me, at least when when I look at any kind of forecast about any kind of investment product. I kind of cynically read through the documents and and and, and that, for instance, was. One of the reasons I picked up the ShareNet thing, they were going around the country and they were promising fantastic returns. ShareMax. ShareMax, I beg your pardon, ShareMax. And the same with PIC and LeaderGuard. And you just have to read through the, the marketing bump. But 
In the last couple of years, I've noticed that that our established large asset managers have kind of, because of the tough conditions and the weak performance, they've been venturing, if I may call it that, into the into the um, area of very bullish forecasts from time to time, which inevitably uh, in the South African context has not come true. And my question, is that fair to the average investor who sits and reads or listens to a radio show and reads a headline of an article and makes their investment decisions based on that extremely bullish forecast? And I it really gets me, it irritates me endlessly when I see these incredibly bullish forecasts. But there's no comeback when wow, these people yeah. get, it, get it wrong. That, that's a big point. I remember talking to a very senior public relations guy uh, some years ago, and he said to me, I'm going to stop recommending that your clients come on to your radio show. And I said, but why? He said, because you always ask them about what they said to you last time. So if they come on for financial results, a year later, I would do my research and have a look at, because of transcriptions, what they had said a year ago and say to them, "Mm, okay, so what about X, Y, Z? And he was very offended that I would have taken that line with them, i.e. they can bulldust us as much as they like uh, because no one's going to hold them to account. And perhaps that's our, uh, our deficiency in the media that we don't hold people to account for the projections and the promises that they made in the past. You know, in the United States, they've got various websites and and organizations that simply track the forecasts of fund managers and and analysts. Uh, I think the Halbert Digest is one of the most prominent ones. And they hold these guys to account and they come on and they say, you, Mr. Joseph, said this the following but this is what happened. What went wrong? So guys are very reluctant to stick out their neck, but we don't have that mechanism in South Africa. And, you know, it's in that context that I sent you some of the forecasts that I keep, which strike me. I mean, the one was by Al Mutual, one of our largest asset managers three years ago. And and they went on radio, they went on roadshows, and they went to all the advisors, brokers, and saying, the JSC will be the best investment over the next five years. I heard that on radio. The print uh, article that I sent you, which was in Business Day, reflected that they said it'll it'll beat the average of the world market. But it was so filled with marketing bump and and, and assumptions. And and I did the follow-up today, and I said, let me go and check what happened in the last three years with regards to that forecast. And by and low, by and behold, the JSC in the last three years has been a disaster. And had you invested money in one of those old mutual in funds, and particularly their largest equity flexible fund, the old mutual investors fund, you've made no money, not a cent. But nobody comes back and questions them because they're, so, they're scared of the advertising revenue that will be yanked and that PR guy who will call them and saying, you know, that's not what we want to hear on the radio. But my question always is, what about that average investor desperately trying to build some retirement capital? And the fund that they're in is totally deficient, very expensive. The fund manager has made more money than those people in those funds. 
and this needs to be spoken about at least have the integrity i'm not i'm just talking in general the media get that fund manager back on and say listen okay you said this this is what happened let's let's hear your side of the story but often the fund manager is unavailable for that conversation, and I'm talking more about uh, JSE-listed companies. If you don't toe the line, if they don't like you, if you don't uh, jolly jolly in the media engagements, well, you don't get invited back. I guess it's a little bit like what happens with the White House press corps. If they rubbed Donald Trump up the wrong way, well, they were ejected from doing their job in essence. But getting back to Nassim Taleb, and this was a – a very good point that he made in his very first book, Fooled by Randomness. He said, if you take 100,000 people and you ask them to toss a coin, after one, of, uh, after one toss, 50,000 will be left. After two tosses, 25,000 will be left. After three tosses, 12,500 will be left. This is when you only keep those who are tossing heads. So the guy who's tossed four heads in a row then stays in the stadium, as it were, if he gets to eight or nine heads in a row, suddenly he thinks that he is the world's best coin tosser, i.e. it's very random in the person who becomes uh, one of those few who remain in the stadium after however many it is when you get down to the last 20. And he makes the point that in investing, some people are going to get dead lucky as well. They're going to invest in the right shares. They're going to do fine, but they cannot believe that they or cannot sell on the basis that they're going to repeat that into the future. And that really is my question to you. Clearly with Old Mutual three years ago, they were making these projections. Some poor fools followed them and put their money with Old Mutual and then uh, are, are, are ruining that day. But what about those looking into the future? How do you choose which asset managers are going to be likely to perform? You know, it's a, it's a more, much more complicated exercise than simply answering this method or that method. And it's a whole process where you start with a macro analysis, you look at the macro trends, you look at past performance of fund managers, you look at past phases of the economic cycle, and that still doesn't answer the question, it's, or it's still one guarantee that you're going to select the best fund manager, but you at least have a far more scientific approach you're taking the guesswork and the bulldust out of it and you build a diversified portfolio based on verifiable facts, not let's just call heads for the next five times. You cannot invest on that basis. So, you know, there's much more to it and it just, it's just immensely annoying. And then the last point, you know, like earlier this year for a very brief period, the JSC, because of the commodity lift it had and the platinum shares running, for I think for about two or three weeks was the f- top performing market in the world based on, on, on that criteria. But since then, and, and then it was just followed by news report after news report about, uh, and again, Old Mutual was guilty of that, saying, well, this is the start of a new bull phase and now's the time to get in and, and don't wait. And boom, I had a look once again, that rally has petered out the JC year to date is again flat. You've made no money, but midway in April, you would you would you would put all your money on the JSC based on the recommendations of these fund managers who are quoted extensively in the press. 
had a, on a coin toss in a way because uh, I suppose they, that, that famous saying that even a broken watch is right twice a, uh, twice a day. But from your perspective, you were attacked then, if I remember correctly. There were it was at least uh, one very high-profile article which said, oh, well, Magnus Haystick doesn't really know what he's talking about because the JSC is outperformed. It is, uh, it is, I suppose, satisfying now to see that these very short-term triggers are often pulling in uh, useful idiots who have got an agenda that, that they want to or a drum that they want to beat. Yes, it's it's part of the game. It's it's a rough game. It's not a gentleman's game, and that was really disappointing from that particular columnist, who I found out subsequently actually is a consultant to the JSE, and it was never declared in his articles. And you know, so he has an extra grind on behalf of his client, which I think he should publish. And one of my clients is the JSE, so there you already have. Something that that's stirs, and and subsequently he's been hundred percent wrong, and as I'll share at the conference next week, you know your your offshore returns versus local returns. I'm talking about the equity markets to be night and day. I mean, be life changing the difference in returns, and all I'm asking for is a little bit of fairness from particularly certain media sections, and and, and just publish the facts. Let people make up their own minds, but even that gets blocked. I'm Chris Bateman, a healthcare journalist and former news editor at the South African Medical Journal. My guest this morning is Professor Kaimantri Mudli, a family physician and bioethicist. She's the director of the Center for Medical Ethics and Law at Stellenbosch University. I'm very conscious of how divisive COVID-19 vaccination has become in this age of instant communication, in spite of, or perhaps because, it impacts at the very core of our physical and financial health. Kemantri, like many of South Africa's globally acknowledged clinicians, you've been in the trenches with all of this, first during the HIV AIDS pandemic and now with COVID. Won't you please briefly outline your motivation for mandatory vaccination? I think the sheer numbers of deaths that we've been experiencing globally, including in South Africa, has been particularly concerning. As a healthcare practitioner, Uh, having served in the public health system for more than 20 years, I'm very familiar with the limited numbers of ICU beds and COVID ward beds that we have currently. I know that the strain on the health system is simply untenable. Our healthcare workers are exhausted. They've been working tirelessly through waves one, two, and now again in wave three. And nobody's looking forward to a fourth wave. In order to reduce the number of people with serious illness, uh, to reduce the number of deaths and hospitalizations, we need to ensure that vaccine rollout occurs really quickly. Although vaccines are not perfect, they are the best tool we currently have in our box of prevention tools. I think you'll remember from the HIV days that we we spoke about, you know, a a box of prevention tools to use uh, to protect people from uh, developing HIV and uh, also to to minimize transmission and to minimize uh, illness. So likewise, during COVID, it's important to consider the fact that we do have a toolbox of prevention uh, items that includes vaccines, masking, hygiene measures, 
physical distancing, etc. And it's really important that we apply all of these prevention measures as soon as possible and that everybody participates in this process. So having vaccines is critical. Uh, many different methods are being used to encourage vaccination, education, counseling, incentives. But vaccines are ultimately what we need, and we need as many people vaccinated as soon as possible. And this is why a mandatory policy is essential in high-risk environments and in all communal settings, because that is where we as individuals start to put other people at risk. And so, to a large extent, you know, this, the need to get the disease under control as quickly as possible to prevent the virus mutating and to ensure that we do not have more vicious variants than the ones we currently have, a mandatory vaccine policy is absolutely critical. I mean, you know, we just have to look around us, you know, our, our, our own families, our loved ones. I think by this stage now, there's hardly a single listener here this morning or here that, that hasn't been impacted somehow. And, you know, financially, we don't have to stop to think very long to see how it's impacting on our economy with tourism. You know, it's a volatile field. Tell us some about some of the pushback you've had. And perhaps before you do that, a little bit of, of, of the legislative environment that supports your argument for, you know, that, that it is actually possible, that, that, that it is legally possible to have mandatory vaccination. Well, Chris, that's the first thing I looked at. You know, ethically, I was quite clear that it is justifiable. A mandatory policy is justifiable on the basis of public uh, interest and uh, saving as many lives as possible during this pandemic, where we know individual rights need to be limited. And so we need to be clear about this. I'm not suggesting that individual rights must be violated. I'm suggesting a limitation on individual rights, which is, which is critical during a public health uh, crisis. Now, legally, even the Constitution allows for a limitation of rights, provided the, re the, the limitation is based in law and it's reasonable and it's the least restrictive limitation we can impose, etc. So the law in South Africa makes provision for a limitation of individual rights as do a number of international declarations like the Syracuse Principles developed by the United Nations. So globally, it's an accepted phenomenon that under special circumstances, such as a public health emergency, we may limit individual rights. We've already done this in South Africa with the Disaster Management Act, and we've had lockdowns, mandatory mask wearing, etc. So mandatory vaccination policies would also fall within the law in that respect. There's also an important part of the Constitution that talks about the fact that everyone has a right to a safe working environment. And this means employers, employees, clients who visit the business premises. So everybody has a right to a safe environment. And that means that vaccinated people in the work environment will not be comfortable having unvaccinated people working with them as they would perceive them to be at higher risk of contracting COVID and transmitting COVID within the workspace. So the Occupational Health and Safety Act, the National Health Act in terms of communicable diseases, we have numerous pieces of legislation and the Constitution that will allow limitation of rights under these circumstances and that will support 
a mandatory vaccination policy. Tell us about some of the pushback you've had. I mean, how do you navigate this minefield? I mean, we seem to be having a stronger, more and more volatile public discourse around this and social you know, media is instant. There's been increasing polarization. We've even had our top clinicians and scientists at one another's throats, not necessarily on vaccination, but on, on the whole COVID rollout. So, Chris, when my, my article was first published on mandatory vaccination in the conversation over a week ago, I had tremendous amount of positive feedback from members of the health profession, members, you know, other bioethicists in the country, members of the legal profession who are experts in constitutional law. So the positive feedback has been tremendous, support from the public as well, from people who desperately want everyone in society to be vaccinated. Now, needless to say, there has been some negative feedback as well from a a wide variety of anti-vaxxers. And and mostly, none of them are able to advance uh, clearly formulated arguments based in science to support their position. And this is the type of misinformation that is circulated uh, by people with low health literacy, poor understanding of science, poor understanding of drug development and clinical trial regulations, who also have a paranoia around the pharmaceutical industry. Yet many of these people are also using a wide variety of medication manufactured by the very same manufacturers of COVID vaccines today. So a great deal of confusion coming through. And so this is it's important that, you know, we continue with education initiatives that correct the misinformation that is circulating widely on social media uh, in a very irresponsible manner. Uh, it's a, it's a, to a large extent, uh, you know, a matter of some people in society simply wanting to have their own way and not wanting to be, to be guided or told that uh, certain health measures need to be implemented for their own good. The funny thing about the anti-vax movement is that as long as they continue resisting and encouraging others to refuse vaccines, the virus is just going to spread rampantly. And we are going to go into vicious cycles of a fourth wave, a fifth wave, a sixth wave, etc. Not only is this having a negative health impact on all in society, so those with COVID and those with other non-COVID illnesses in terms of access to health care, but it is also having a negative impact on the economy, driving unemployment. And so these multiple effects in terms of health and the economy are simply being perpetuated by the very people who are fighting against lockdown and who are fighting against the economic impact and against the ability you know, that COVID imposes in terms of socialization. So if we all want a better future, it's in, our, it's in the interest of all to try as much as possible to adopt the prevention measures that are available in terms of vaccines and masking, etc., and to assist in bringing this pandemic to an end. It's, okay. At the end of the day, it will be a win-win situation for all of us. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why 
South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Gigi Alcock is with us on the day after the unemployment figures for South Africa were released, showing horrific numbers. But Gigi, we've spoken about this uh, a number of times in the past, and I'd like to get some context on unemployment and the numbers and, and the way they're put together. Uh, before we go there, though, just to introduce you to those who haven't met you before, you're a marketer, uh, the author of Cosinomics and the Cosinomics Revolution, uh, a speaker, an entrepreneur, and someone who really specializes in letting the rest of us understand how the informal market operates in South Africa. When you see this data coming out of Stats SA, uh, the unemployment figures showing, uh, well, world-leading numbers uh, on the wrong side. What goes through your head? Uh, Alec, uh, look, I mean, first of all, uh, um, we have to differentiate, you know, to define how we how we uh, measure unemployment. And one of the big problems with the numbers that we see is that it says unemployment, it doesn't say formal unemployment. And, and actually, it needs to say that because, uh, you know, a lot of the Anything outside of someone who earns a payslip is, in essence, not measured by by those numbers. Um, I saw a, an, an article this morning by Mike Schussler where he kept referring to formal unemployment and formal unemployment, and he's spot on because uh, you know if you don't have a payslip, if you're not formally employed, if you're in the informal sector, uh, this is not measured. So, so while I think it's a tragedy and it's a, it's, it's a terrible that formal uh, employment or un- a formal unemployment is so high, uh, it's not a true reflection of our entire um, unemployment and I must add um, other forms of income generating activities. Uh, and, and a simple one as an example that I've referred to in the past is, um, for instance, rental, pr- primarily backroom rental, which is a 20 billion rand a year uh um, sector in the in the townships and and certain rural areas. So you know that's money that people are earning who may be formally unemployed and informally unemployed, but are still earning income through other activities. And and that kind of stuff is not measured in in our in our numbers. Just tell us about Cosinomics, uh, a nutshell, uh, the books that you've written and what motivated you to focus on this area. So the, the the underlying principle of it is 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 that there's a massive economy that is an invisible or informal or unmeasured economy that uh, sits in informal sector and that informal sector is not I called it gasinomics because I don't like the concept of informal because it implies unsophisticated small scale low tech um, disorganized and so on which of course the informal economy is not. Uh, and, and so the, the, I created the term gasinomics, which refers to the township, but uh, purely as a, as a term to define, move away from the informal economy. And the, and the concept of gasinomics is, in essence, that within our inner cities, within our rural areas, within our townships, and even around us in the suburbs, there's a huge uh, informal um, economy or an unmeasured economy 
that is not only huge in terms of large numbers of people and large numbers of small businesses, but huge in amounts of turnover that many of these businesses are turning over. And and those sectors, just in a kind of um, kind of thumbnail, is uh, you know the spaza sector is a hundred and fifty billion rand sector with a hundred thousand outlets. The fast food or rakokasiko sector is a ninety billion rand fifty thousand outlet sector. Um, the um, hair salon sector is 10 billion rand. The muti sector, um, you know, traditional herbal medicine is a 19 billion rand sector with 150,000 people employed in it. Um, and, and many others, you know, um, so, so it could be the construction sector, the, the taxi sector, 250,000 taxis, 50 billion rand a year. The, the, um, uh, you know, there's others like the auto trade, auto sector. So like uh, Gassi panel beaters, mechanics and so on. It's about 80 odd thousand um, people. Then there's the rental sector. The, the, um, as I mentioned, backroom rental is worth about 20 billion rand a year. Over and above the residential backroom rental, the spaza sector that I mentioned, um, primarily rents and there's another 25 billion rand in rental that's earned by uh, uh, um, spazas, particularly um, immigrant or foreign spaza owners renting from South Africans. Um, so, so, you know, you add all of this up and you've got a, a fairly substantial sector. Uh, recently, FNB breathlessly announced um, informal sector or cash economy far larger than ever thought and mentioned wholesalers in the kind of broadly spaza sector doing about uh, kind of 40 million rand a month as an example. Um, I've written about uh, fast food outlets doing 50,000 rand a day plus and so on. So, so, so there's this huge sector that's there. Um, it's an unsupported sector in terms of support from government, from, from the formal corporate sector, be it financial institutions and, and so on. Uh, bylaws in essence, uh, uh, you know, are created to, to undermine the sector and, 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 and. But in essence, we have this huge sector and, and, um, to a large extent, this sector sustains livelihoods, incomes, employs people, pays people, uh, primarily in cash. Uh, and it's an unmeasured sector, particularly when it comes to unemployment. And, and uh, you know, my argument is that real unemployment pre-COVID would have been closer to 10 to 12% based on, on, on estimating these sectors. Um, and, and probably now, I mean, it's hard to say, um, because, you know, it has the, in, the formal um, un, uh, unemployment has grown, but parallel to that, a large number of indicators are showing that the informal sector has grown, um, as the formal sector has been pummeled by, by COVID lockdowns and so on, because, um, a number of reasons. One of them is that, um, a lot of, of, of the informal sector is, is, uh, residentially based. So if your hair salon is in your, is a container in your front yard or a back room, uh, it's a hawker on a street corner and so on and so forth. And so that sector has in essence not been as badly affected, but we've also seen a lot of growth of that sector. You're saying people are hustling. I mean, people are actually getting at it and making making a living. But those numbers that you quoted earlier are huge figures. Where do you get them from? How do you calculate them? Or are they just a good guess? Oh, sure. I wish they were good guesses. In fact, I, 
I, I um, when when uh, FNB brought out the article, I said on LinkedIn, you know, they should have read read my book in 2014, and they would have discovered the sector. And they didn't have to discover it in in uh, 20, seven years later. <laughs> but putting all of that together, so we've got this economy that no one is measuring or is not being properly measured. Then you have a look at South Africa as a whole, and you've got your finger on these pulses. You've always remained fairly optimistic about the country. Do you? Still, are you still in that frame of mind? Yeah, Alec, I'm, I'm even more so. I mean, even and and I'll talk to some of this at the at the conference. But uh, you know, even the unrest indicated if you if you looked at, for instance, people like in Dipslurt, you know, uh, Dipslurt uh, the the morning after the the local mall was was um, looted, uh, the local community were were going door to door and pulling out the. The um, the looters and handing them over to the police and and Dipslut's a low eco- economy area and so on you know so there's a real positivity in terms of if you look at the the right side of the storylines of course they don't bear if it doesn't bleed if it bleeds it leads you know and uh, um and 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 also the resilience of the informal sector despite um, lockdowns, despite um, social unrest, despite these theoretically massive unemployment figures, is just, um, you know, just keeps on. And there, David Herbert's mentioned it. I'll, I'll show some other people who've speaking about this. The reality is that, that, that the vast proportion of our population, particularly within this kind of gasinomic sector that I talk about, actually are carrying on with their lives, are incredibly optimistic, are living happy suburban middle-class lives, um, drinking at the tavern when there's lockdown um, and and so on. Um, and, uh, and, Not paying and actually, attention to the rules. Is that what you're telling me, <laughs> that they, they, the, the rules are for other people, not for us? Well, you know, what I've said is that uh, the lockdowns made the people in the formal sector suddenly meet the informal sector and engage in it when they needed their ciggies <laughs> and so on. <laughs> they discovered the informal sector. Um, and some of them started trading in the informal sector. But, I mean, the, the thing is, is that there really is a – palpable um, difference in the optimism and the energy that I, I I engage with and I see and I feel when I'm in these spaces. And and uh, it is not misery and doom and gloom. And, and this middle class uh, sector, both both formally and informally uh, employed, um, what I call gassipolitans, you know, these are people who are very modern, sophisticated people, but very rooted in the in the township space as a as a residential space. Um, you know, are really the hope for our country in, in in all sorts of ways, and they continue. They they they're not leaving, <laughs> and neither am I. Um, and, 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 uh, you know, I, I, I get energized by that. Uh, I live in Kailami in Johannesburg and, and many of my friends, you know, are like, oh, how do you carry on? And don't you get depressed when you go to the township? And the opposite, I come to the suburbs to, to the Mink and Manure set and I get more depressed because, uh, you know, there's, there's less hope and, and energy. You know, so so that's that part of our society is a very dynamic one, um, and it's not a poor poor one. I mean, there is poverty in our country, but but uh, Alec, poverty in our country, real poverty, where people don't eat or don't eat enough, is in my mind closer to five to ten percent of our population, reflective of those informal dwellings. The vast majority of our society 
um, is is not in that space. And and that vast proportion of our society is quite honestly carrying on with life, having a relatively happy life. In fact, many ways a very happy life. And uh, and and uh, you know that for me is the hope of of this. And and that's the mainstay of our society. It's the majority of our society in numbers. It, it represents massive opportunity also for businesses who look differently at that space uh, and 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 particularly in reciprocal business models where where they're not only just extracting as and selling something to those spaces but where they're helping build those businesses as well as building their own businesses. I'm Bronwyn Nielsen live on Biz News TV and we're joined now by Dr. Rolof Boerter who is the economic advisor to the Optimum Investment Group and certainly the brains behind the Ultron Fintech Household Financial Index. Um, Dr. Boerter, give me a sense of uh, what the data is coming back and showing with regards to the health of South African households when it comes to applying for credit and their ability to pay back credit. As far as I understand it, this index will be released from here on out on a quarterly basis. Certainly. I must just tell our viewers that there's a generally negative perception of microfinance in South Africa. And Altron Fintech provides software solutions to microfinance institutions that comply with the National Credit Regulator. So of the estimated 40,000, 45,000 micro-lending institutions in this country, to the best of my knowledge, only about 10% of them, even slightly less, are actually registered with the National Credit Regulator. Altron Fintech is playing an active role also in educating the others, advising them on the advantages of actually making 100% sure that this is responsible lending. But if one looks at microfinance in South Africa, if you can extend access to finance to relatively poor households who have some source of revenue, obviously, you need if you borrow money, you need to repay your debt, then it stands to reason that you can expedite expenditure, you can expedite productivity, because many of these Eltron Fintex customers, which are the microfinance institutions, they actually use these loans for working capital, to buy welding rods, to buy fuel for their buckies so that they can get out to site and build houses, etc., etc. So it's, it plays an invaluable role in actually allowing economic activity to flourish also, especially in informal areas. Absolutely. I mean, the, the finance is easily accessible at an elevated rate. I mean, that's the, the reality here. But there's a place for it in a environment where it is difficult to get loans from the traditional banking contingency. Agreed? Yes, absolutely. The advantage of the microfinance institutions is that they have a, an intimate relationship with their customers. Whereas in the formal banking sector, you know, your interface is a computer. Uh, I don't know when last you tried to see a bank manager. <laughs> it's almost impossible. Uh, and I must uh, tell the viewers as well that an institution like the MasterCard Foundation is actively involved in financing and monitoring progress with financial inclusion for lower income groups all over the world in all developing countries. In India, they're actually moving to a scenario where they want another tier of financial intermediation. At the bottom end, you have your microfinance institutions, as we know them, some of whom are not operating within the, the law, which is obviously should be prevented. And then you have your formal banking sector. And somewhere in between, in many countries, including South Africa, it, it is really difficult for many smaller 
businesses and even individuals in households to actually access credit. And what they are looking at is a sort of a premier league for microfinance institutions where you're, you're actually building this ladder of upward mobility with regard to financial inclusion is being built rung by rung. And I think that's a brilliant idea. Dr. Bursa, the, the perception is, though, that generally, and you have said that the perception of the microfinance industry is generally a negative one, because at the end of the day, you generally are in a place of desperation when you reach out for that short-term loan to keep yourself going from a working capital perspective. And the reality is that you don't actually think about the consequences of, of how much you are having to pay for access to that emergency funding. The regulatory side, as you say, you know, there, there is a regulatory body. You indicated that about 10% of microfinance lenders are currently registered. But is there some governance on the upward or on the fees that are required or set by the microfinance lending institution? No, absolutely. And I must just say that I was commissioned to assist Altron Fintech in establishing a benchmark index whereby for their own planning and strategic planning whereby they, we have an idea of what is the financial resilience, what is the ability of households, your median household in South Africa, to actually incur and service debt, bearing in mind that, of course, a definition of a statistician is somebody that will tell you if your feet are in the oven and your head is in the freezer on average, you are quite comfortable, which is something which we should not try. But I cannot speak on behalf of Altron Fintech. What I do know is that they are only in the market for uh, those microfinance institutions that are registered with the National Credit Regulator and the whole, uh, all the software that they develop that you find at these machines, at these registered MFIs, comply with every single requirement of the National Credit Regulator. So that person that applies for a loan must have a, 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 a regular source of income. It must be proven and all the checks and balances are in place. So we are talking about the regulated formal uh, industry. As far as the index is concerned, um, we have identified uh, 20 different indicators. You see, sometimes uh, uh, there's a little report which comes out which tells you that uh, there have been so many defaults on loans. And and then it, it makes headline news in the business pages. You know, oh, you know, people are, are now all going to go bankrupt, which is not always accurate. You need to have a, a composite indicator which looks at other sources of revenue than just salaried revenue. There are many sources of revenue for median South African households, indirectly, indirectly. You have got dividends, you've got capital gains sometimes. I know of many people personally, they go out to auctions. <laughs> they buy anything from tractors to sheep, uh, you know, to bicycles, and then they sell it for a profit because they know there's somebody around here that he gets a bicycle for 500 rand. This guy's going to pay 700 rand for that bicycle. We've covered our basis. We've got 20 different indicators, most of which are a basis of either current or future revenue. What is the story around the average household in South Africa right now, given the COVID-19 pandemic and all of the constraints that came from the pandemic's perspective, a business continuity being affected across the board? Where are we from a health perspective in terms of, of the data that you've brought to the fore? Well, the good news is that we've calculated this we had to choose a base period with a composite index like this. Our base period is the first quarter of 2014. It's a couple of years after the 2008 recession. I don't know uh, if you remember that. Obviously, long before the, the COVID, it was a period, first quarter of 2014, when Jill Marcus was governor of the Reserve Bank. Uh, and we had a real interest rate, real prime rate of 3% on average. 
Uh, in other words, the prime overdraft rate minus the CPI. And we saw, because we, we chose first quarter 2014, we've got all the data for these indicators. We can see what happened. It went, it improved quite nicely until she retired. And then the new monetary policy committee who were appointed by the previous president, they decided to double, in other words, to increase by 100% the real prime rate. It went to 6%. And the economy suffered. We can see in our index, the resilience continued to improve, but the slope started flattening. And then when it became evident that we have state capture in South Africa, that when the lights started going out and we realized that, you know, the public sector at large has become rather incompetent, the line went horizontal. And then COVID came and it dipped. And actually, the trend for our index does follow roughly if you smooth the leading business cycle indicator, it follows the same trend. The good news is that it has fully recovered and it is showing marginal growth. What is the scenario on the downside? What could derail the upward momentum when it comes to the general well-being of the South African household from a financial perspective? I must be quite honest. On a policy level, if the Reserve Bank were to raise interest rates again, at the time when we desperately need capital formation, which in the old days used to be called gross domestic fixed investment, which uh, is nothing else than investment and new productive capacity. If they raise interest rates again, that will not be good for us. If, if government can continue to expand the new style of policy, which is unfolding closer partnership, closer cooperation with the private sector. Recently, President Ramaphosa and uh, Minister Ibrahim Patel brokered a deal with a major, major motor manufacturer in Pretoria, in Chwani, which led to the, an investment of 17 billion in new productive capacity. This is the new style. Our president realizes that government cannot create meaningful jobs that add value to the economy. The private sector can do that. So removing the obstacles to growth is paramount. And I'm so encouraged by our new finance minister, Mr. Gordon Guana, who has said publicly that Less talk and more action. I'm really encouraged. Obviously, COVID is still hanging above our heads. You know, it's so irritating because the hospitality sector hasn't come to the party yet. Today is Wednesday, August 25th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Joe Biden won't budge on the deadline to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan, and the U.K. is rolling out new rules to try to protect children's data online. Joe Biden is sticking to his plan to pull American troops out of Afghanistan by August 31st. The president did so despite pressure from key allies to extend the deadline. He repeated his decision yesterday. Each day of operations brings added risk to our troops, but the completion by August 31st depends upon the Taliban continuing to cooperate and allow access to the airport for those who were, trans- were transporting out. Now, some suggest that Biden doesn't want an extension because he'd have to negotiate that with the Taliban, and that could make him look weak. Here's the FT's Amy Williams on what the administration is saying to that. Their response is that it's it's not a sign of weakness. The Taliban have control of Kabul. Those are the facts on the ground. They're cooperating with the Taliban, and they want out. But they also reiterate, you know, if the Taliban use force, then U.S. forces will respond as they're allowed to do in self-defense. Uh, they're, they're quite sensitive to the suggestion that it, that it's a weak posture, but it does seem to be true that they are 
relying on uh, the Taliban's cooperation at, at this time, for sure. So, Amy, let's switch gears to what is considered a pretty contentious issue, and, and that's uh, refugees coming out of Afghanistan. Biden touched on that a bit in his White House press conference yesterday. What did he have to say? Well, he reiterated something he said actually on Sunday when he spoke from the White House as well, which is that he feels the U.S. has a duty to take in Afghans who've helped the U.S. mission in Afghanistan to rehouse them, give them visas, let them live on continental U.S. soil. We know that the Pentagon is using four military bases at the moment. Uh, They're aiming to hold 25,000 Afghan Uh, refugees, essentially, across those four bases. Um, And we know that a few planes, I think it was four or five planes, have landed at Washington Dulles Airport so far full of refugees. And we know that that number will increase for sure. That's the FT's Amy Williams. Next week, the UK will have new rules for social media companies, video streaming services, and gaming platforms The goal is to protect children's data. The Information Commissioner's Office, or ICO, is issuing the rules, which look to limit companies from tracking location or personalizing content or advertising for kids. Regulators also want to target behavioral nudges, like automatically playing videos so that kids are hooked and keep watching. Companies that break the code could face a fine of up to 4% of global turnover. Some of the world's biggest social media companies have already announced changes ahead of the UK regulations going into effect. So take YouTube. It said it would turn off default autoplay on videos for children under 18. Instagram introduced a new feature preventing adults from messaging people under 18 who don't follow them. And TikTok said it would no longer send push notifications to kids after certain times at night. U.S. lawmakers have been keeping an eye on U.K. regulations, and they've called on American companies to adopt them, although voluntarily. Before we go, a word from a pandemic winner. Low and slow, 180 degrees Fahrenheit. Take a look at that sexy mahogany color off the grill. That's Danielle Bennett, otherwise known as Diva Q. She's grilling pork butts in a video for BBQGuys.com. The online barbecue retailer went public this summer via SPAC or blank check merger at a valuation of nearly $1 billion. Now, in case you didn't know, Americans love to cook outdoors. I am very much in this category. And according to one industry survey, two out of three American adults own a grill or smoker. During the pandemic, all that time at home and outdoor entertaining made grill sales even hotter. So companies that specialize in this sort of thing seize the moment to raise money. In addition to BBQGuys.com, a company specializing in wood pellet cooking called Traeger went public via an IPO. Even the granddaddy of grill makers, Weber, decided to float on the public markets, and its shares are still cooking well above the IPO price. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Well, thanks for being with us today. We'll be back again with you same time, same place tomorrow. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.